Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. I guess at my age, I should be happy to be anywhere. Uh, the sermon I'd like to share this morning comes from a story in the Old Testament. Do you like uh, stories? Well, you're going to hear a great one. Uh, there are a lot of them in the Old Testament, and we're going to read one of them. It's a story about a, a beautiful woman named Abigail. And uh, her story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. You see that in the notes uh, in the bulletin. And uh, in my normal way of preaching, I would uh, be to go verse by verse explaining uh, the meaning of the text. But uh, today, this is, is a story. Uh, and like that, it, it requires a freer treatment. So I'm kind of telling a story here as we expose the passage of Scripture uh, for today. Scripture references come from the message. So this is a paraphrase of the Bible that you'll see on the screen. <clears throat> Blockhead, numbskull, nincompoop. How do you like that for the beginning of a sermon? These terms strike us both as harsh and humorous. But any woman married to a man worthy of such labels would have little to laugh about. Such was the situation for Abigail, a heroine of our, our Bible biography this week. When she, uh, with her father, had arranged uh, a marriage, Abigail's marriage, uh, he may have believed that the wealthy Nabal was a catch for his daughter little realizing that the man with his dominating self-centered character might one day endanger his daughter's well-being. This uh, story is an account of that woman who literally saved her husband's neck, rescuing him and many others from a violent death. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in a story here. Uh, as you read this account... It's a fascinating tale. It's found in 1 Samuel 25, and it reminds you of a, a classic Western story. Wide-open country, gritty heroes on horseback, a tough, beautiful heroine, a crusty, hard-hearted villain who makes life miserable for everyone around him. Only this story is not fiction. It's real. It's a real story about real people hundreds of years ago, written in the scriptures. And it revolves around three conflicted characters. And uh, in the outline here uh, this morning, we're going to look at those characters. And then we're going to look at the crisis that's created by this interchange of characters. And then we're going to look at the climax to the story. That's our outline for this morning. First, let's take a look at uh, the characters of this story. His name, first we find the handsome warrior. His name was David. Now, that's the same David that you and I know pretty well from the Old Testament. Uh, David, it says in verse 25, that he moved down from the desert of Maon. Now, this is, uh, by this time in the storyline, David had uh, uh, come to some notoriety. He had already killed Goliath. He had received the 
anointing as the future king of Israel. But get this, ironically, he was hiding out in the wilderness of Paran. Well, we have a little map here, I think, that shows this. This is a, 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 a place to the south of Israel, below the Dead Sea, um, just uh, near there. And uh, David was, again, this is the, the first character he carried, uh, killed Killed Goliath, received the anointing by the future king of Israel. But he was hiding in the wilderness of Paran. Uh, David, to avoid, uh, now that uh, David was uh, there, but now he was avoiding the, the paranoid King Saul. So David is now a resented outcast of, his, of Israel's royalty. In the previous chapter, Saul was pursuing David to take his own life. So David has fled and is now in this desolate desert that you can see here on the, on the map. Today we might call this area no man's land. It's too far away to be influenced by any other government authority. So those living there had to fend for themselves. It was the law of the jungle the survival of the shrewd flocks and sheeps of goats could be easy pickings for bandits. Uh, I don't know about you, but this sounds a lot like a, a wild Western that we might have seen in the movies. Now, David recruited a band of 600 fighting men. And uh, by now, these were well-trained, battle-hardened soldiers. And when they got to this desolate area to the south of Palestine, They uh, set up shop and got to this area and, and, um, you know, uh, found themselves with some uh, flocks, um, uh, business owners who owned flocks there in the area. The custom was that peacekeepers would not demand payment for their services. Uh, However, as a matter of integrity, the businessmen would voluntarily offer compensation Uh, out of gratitude. Now, to withhold this payment would be like failing to tip a waitress for the service that he or she might provide. In this case, the protection that David provided was outstanding, superb. None of the herds were harmed. None of the flocks were harmed. None of the the, the livestock was taken by thieves. So now the scene shifts from the desert of that uh, uh, that desert area to a trade city in Carmel. That's the name of the, the city. Businessmen gather there to buy and sell their wares. Here's where we meet the the second character. First we've seen David, and now we're introduced to a second character. And note how he's described in verses two and three. A certain man. In Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. That means he was a big time guy there, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal. Now, notice his description: a Calebite, um, 
a Calebite who was surly and mean in his dealings. Now, how would you like to have that described about you forever etched in the Bible for, for all of time? So this guy was not exactly a, a nice person. He was surly and mean in his dealings. That's what the text says. So now the word Nabal, interestingly enough, means fool. That probably was not what his parents originally named him, right? Parents, you know, when you decided to name your kids, uh, would you have conferred with each other and said, hey, let's name our son Fool? Or uh, how about Doofus? Or maybe Wayward? Way, how you doing this morning? No, you wouldn't do that. Nabal was probably a name that was acquired through time as his character played out in the decisions of his life. And as the drama unfolds here, we find this to be the case. Uh, his lifeline might be uh, from the motto of the TV uh, uh, series Survivor, outwit, outplay, outlast. But Nabal wasn't smart enough to pull that off. Now, we're introduced to a, a third person here. This is the heroine of the story. She's also described in verse 3. And uh, she's the wife of this uh, uh, man, Nabal. Uh, the text says his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. Do you see how the text describes her? God went out of his way to say that she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. Now, in essence, she was stunning in every way you could take the term. And we find her in the storyline to be resourceful, industrious, quick-thinking, and courageous. Now, note that Nabal is introduced in terms of his possessions. It says about Nabal that he was rich. He was rich. Abigail, in contrast, was introduced with graceful words about her character, her persona. She was intelligent and beautiful. Isn't that interesting, the contrast there that the author of this passage of Scripture gives us? May I ask you a question? If you were in this story, if you were described by the author, what um, words would he have chosen for you? How would he have described you? in this story. You know, we live in a society that defines significance by what we possess. And if that's becoming true of you or me, uh, we better watch out. Because more often than not, our possessions, if they become our God, can turn around and bite us. Our possessions can turn around and possess us if we're not careful. Let me ask you a question. 
Are you known more for your car or your character? Are you known more for your house or your hospitality? So we have here the characters, David, Nabal, Abigail. The characters are set in place. The stage is set. Now let's jump to the story. And like any good story, there's a crisis that arises. Right? This gets us to the second section of what I'd like to examine here. Uh, and that's our um, crisis that our characters are now involved in. First, we see a request by David in verses 4 to 9. David hears that the time has come for sheep to be sheared. It's harvest time. It's payback time. So he sends 10 of his men uh, to remind Nabal of their protection services. Look at what happens. Listen to David's uh, comment and the tone of his words. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. So he's even giving health to the, wishing health on the, the livestock. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, <clears throat> and your whole time that they were uh, that that they were with <clears throat> with us in Carmel, uh, there were nothing nothing was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men, since we come at a festive time. In other words, harvest season. Therefore, be favorable to my young men. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. They gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and then they waited. Now let me ask you, what do you hear from this interchange? What's the tone? From all appearances, it appears to be a very gracious uh, cultural practice, a very gracious part of what David is, is asking for. He's not demanding food. David is simply invoking a cultural practice of rewarding the protectors of the flocks. That's just it was a cultural practice. So don't miss the fact that um, this was uh, what was happening. He didn't expect to get a certain amount, but he said, get whatever you think. Peace be unto you. Shalom. Now, if this were a bill, I would call it a very gracious one, um, a considerate statement. I don't ever remember getting from uh, my water company in Lancaster the last time uh, Barb and I owned a home. I never don't recall ever getting a, a, a message like this. Dear Mr. Cook, Peace be unto you and your home and your family. You've enjoyed clean and clear water in your home all these many weeks. Since we have expenses we must pay, do you think you might be able to help us with those? 
Please return the enclosed envelope with anything you care to send. May God bless you, your humble servants at the water company. Now, uh, I think I'd faint if I got that. Normally it says, pay now, put it here, send it by this date, or we'll shut off your water and charge you extra to turn it back on. Right? Now, David didn't do that. See, in essence, he said, send whatever you think's fair. We'll receive it with gratitude. Now, note the reactions. First, notice Nabal's response. You can probably think what's coming. His response could not have been more insulting. Look at verses 10 and 11. Nabal answered David, David's servants and said, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Of course, he knew who David was. Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? (laughs) What do you detect from the response of Nabal? Mockery? Derision? Well, that's the tone you get. See, he learned his people's skills in the zoo. And even uh, the animals would probably be offended by that statement. See, he knew who David was. This was a calculated slap in the face for both David and his lineage. See, Nabal needed protection. David provided, provided it. Actually, Nabal's own shepherds testified to this fact. Look at verse 16. It says that night and day, they, David, David's men, were a wall around us all the time. We were herding our sheep near them. But Nabal refused to acknowledge David's help. See, he never met a person he couldn't anger or a relationship he couldn't destroy. Nabal's world revolved around one person, numero uno, Nabal. Now, David's response is found in verses 12 and 13. And it's not very flattering either. (laughs) David loses it here. He decides to wipe Nabal and his whole family off the face of the earth. He takes 400 of his warrior men, goes to kill the whole male side of the family of Nabal. So now David's behaved fairly well so far in this story until this point. But, you know, the response from thankless, arrogant Nabal just got his goat. The darker side was brought out of David. Have you ever had a person like Nabal in your life? (laughs) Some of you have. I see some shaking of heads. He or she... uh, uh, is, is, is somebody who just gets you going in the wrong direction. It could be someone at the office, uh, the job where you work, 
the job site. It could be a neighbor. It could be a family member on your husband's side, of course. It could even be in this church. Perish the thought, but it could even be in this church. They say something that's so off the wall that you just cannot leave it uncorrected. Some of you know someone like that. Nabal was that kind of a person to David. And uh, (laughs) Nabal was that kind of a person to David. Now, David was a work in progress, uh, like we all are, right? And his reaction was came from his fleshly nature. Uh, the story does not sugarcoat the character of David. You know, there's an honesty in Scripture that's remarkable. It's not found in most ancient literature. But there's an honesty in Scripture Because you and I have a gracious God, we can be honest about our sin. We can go to him and confess our sin and be forgiven and be able to move on. So do you understand the situation here? An angry fool is about to be confronted by an angry king to be, and appears that nothing can prevent the looming disaster that's about to happen. At this point, Abigail enters the drama and provides some great crisis intervention. She takes immediate action, decisive action, wasting no time. She chooses to go to the only person whom negotiation is possible. David. She gathers an abundance of foodstuffs, smart lady, a feast for a king. She wastes no time to send them to David. She doesn't tell her husband, (laughs) Nabal. Lives are at stake, and Nabal has absolutely no discernment in this matter. None whatsoever. To establish surprise, she sends a load of food ahead of her while she remains hidden in a ravine below, revealing herself only at the last moment. 400 men come upon her. They rein in their horses. Some gape at the food. Some gape at the female. I like uh, what Max Lucado says about this uh, event. Max Lucado, the the Bible uh, um, Bible pastor and uh, author, he says this. He puts it: she was good looking with good cooking, a combination that stops almost any army. I like that. Now notice two other ways that Abigail disarms the ticking time bomb in David's heart. First of all, she assumes a posture of humility. Huh, radical thought. She assumes a posture of humility. Look at verse 
verses 23 and 24. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. So notice, as soon as she meets David, what she does. There are four statements of subjection that you see here. First, she quickly dismounts her donkey. Second, she bowed down before David. Third, she uh, third, she fell at his feet. And fourth, she takes the blame, the full responsibility for what happened when David's men came seeking provisions. Now, what's going on here? What's she doing? I suggest to you, she's taking Nabal out of the equation. This is a brilliant strategy. A brilliant strategy. Now, David is dealing with her, not Nabal. David's dealing with this beautiful, gracious, humble woman. And yeah, a bearer, by the way, of a lot of good food. So first, Abigail assumes a posture of humility and servanthood. You know, men and women, it, it's, uh, it occurs to me that this is not a bad pattern for us to adopt, for any of us to adopt. May I ask you a question? Do you want to make a difference? Would you like to have an impact upon people? Do you want to change someone's heart? Do you wish to reconcile with someone whom you've hurt deeply? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know you're currently in a tough situation with someone that you have close connection to. Take that first step. Assume a posture of humility, a desire to reconcile a willingness to forgive. Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he said, uh, when he said, if you wish to be great in my kingdom, you must first be the servant of all. Isn't that a fascinating statement for Jesus to make? The son of God. See, by taking the posture of a servant, Abigail changed the dimensions of that relationship. She changed the temperature of that situation. Notice, second of all, she exhorts David. First of all, she, she takes that posture of humility, but now she takes the opportunity to exhort the king. Get that. She exhorts David to a higher way of living. And here I'd like to, to read from uh, the text of the, the passage uh, in the message. Here's what Abby says to David. See them and how my master, David, as God lives and as you live, God has seen them. And now, my master, David, as God lives and as God you and as God lives and you live, 
God has kept you from this avenging murder. And may your enemies all seek, uh, excuse me, and your, may your enemies, all who seek my master's harm, end up like Nabal. Now take this gift that I, your servant girl, have brought to my master, namely that great food that she's just made, and give it to the young uh, men who follow in the steps of my master. Abby says, forgive my presumption to the king, but God is at work in my master, developing a rule, solid and dependable. My master fights God's battles. As long as you live, no evil will stick to you. If anyone stands in your way, if anyone tries to get you out of the way, know this, your God-honored life is tightly bound in the bundle of God-protected life. Wow, that's a great statement. But the lives of your enemies will be hurled aside as a stone is thrown from a sling. And when God completes all this goodness, she says to David, when God completes all this goodness, he has promised my master, and set you up as prince over Israel, my master will not have this dead weight in his heart, the guilt of an avenging murder. And when God has worked things for good for my master, remember me, she simply says. Now I want you to notice the, the climax here of the story. Climax to the story. Um, David has a change. He praises God and he gives admiration admiration for for this, this wonderful woman, Abigail. Look at what he says in verses 32 and 33. Praise be to the Lord who has sent you today to meet with me. May you be blessed for your good judgment, for keeping me from bloodshed this day, from avenging myself from my own hands. Go to your home. I have heard your words and granted your request. So great news here. David, impressed by Abigail's wisdom, follows her advice and gratefully accepts the food she has prepared. Nabal, and his family are mercifully spared, <laughs> mercifully spared. David avoids gaining a reputation of being a tyrant just before becoming the king. Isn't the timing of that interesting? This would have been a great way to end the story. But there's a divinely intended extension to this tale. And uh, this is great. Notice in verses 36 to 38, Nabal's death. Abigail's judgment of her husband is vindicated when uh, shortly afterwards, when Nabal, after a drunken night, found out how narrow the escape he had from, from David originally in the story. The news show so, so shocked Nabal that he died 10 days later. That's what the text says. 
He died 10 days, 10 days later. Now notice Abigail's reward. Found in uh, verses 39 to 42. When David hears Nabal's death and Abby's sudden availability, I'm summarizing this passage now. He thanks God for the first and takes advantage of the second. Unable to shake the memory of this incredible woman, David asks her to marry him. And she turns her down. No, she didn't turn him down. She said yes. She accepts. This is a closing uh, of a, a great story, a great ending to a captivating story. But it is a story with a profound message, isn't it? I'd like to summarize this message with another relatively short story founded by Max Locato in Max Locato's book called Facing Your Giants. And uh, if you like, if uh, you permit me, I'd like to read this story from uh, Max Locato's writings. This is a story about a, uh, an individual. Ernest Gordon groans in the death camp the death house in Chungkoi Kai, Burma. He listens to the moans of the dying and smells the stench of the dead. Pitiless jungle heat bakes his skin and parches his throat. Had he the strength, he could wrap uh, one hand around his bony thigh. But he had neither energy nor strength nor the interest. Diphtheria has, diphtheria has drained both. He can't walk. He can't even feel his body. He shares a cot with flies and bedbugs and awaits a lonely death in a Japanese prison of war camp. How harsh the war has been on him. He entered World War II with, in his early 20s, a robust Highlander of the Scotland Argyle and Sutherland Brigade. But now came the capture of by the Japanese and months of backbreaking labor in the jungle. Daily beatings, did you get that? Daily beatings by the Japanese. And slow starvation. Scotland now seems far away. Civility even farther. The Allied soldiers behave like barbarians stealing from each other, robbing the dying, colleagues, fighting for food scraps, servers shortchange rations so they can have extra for themselves. The law of the jungle has become the law of the camp. Gordon is happy to bid adieu. Death by disease trumps life in Chunkai. But then something wonderful happens in this place. Two new prisoners in whom hope still stirs are transferred to the camp. Though also sick and frail, they heed a higher code. They share their meager meals and volunteer for extra work. They cleanse Gordon's ulcerated sores and massage his atrophied legs. They give him first uh, his first bath in six weeks. When was your last bath? See, his strength slowly returns, and 
with it his dignity. Their goodness proves contagious, and Gordon contracts a case. He begins to treat sick and share his rations. He even gives away his few belongings. Other soldiers do likewise. Over time, the tone of the camp softens and brightens. Sacrifice replaces selfishness. Soldiers hold worship services and Bible studies. Twenty years later, when Gordon served as the chaplain to Princeton University, later uh, his name was put on Gordon Conwell Seminary, He described this transformation with these words. Death was still with us. No doubt about that. But we were slowly being freed from the destructive grip. Selfishness, hatred, and pride were all anti-life. Love, sacrifice, faith, on on the other hand, were the essence of life. Gifts to God, gifts of God to men. Death no longer had the last word in Chunkai prison camp. Selfishness, hatred, pride. You know, you don't have to go to a prison war camp to find it, right? You could easily find it in a dormitory on a college campus. They would do fine or a boardroom of a corporation, or the bedroom of a marriage, or the backwoods of a county. See, the the code of the jungle is alive and well today, isn't it, unfortunately? Every man for himself, every woman for herself, get all you can, can all you get. Survival of the fittest. Now I'd like to ask the question, Does this code contaminate your world? Do personal pronouns, possessive pronouns, dominate the language of your circle? My career, my dreams, my stuff. I want things to go my way on my schedule. If so... You know how savage this giant can be. Yet every so often, a diamond glitters in the mud. A comrade shares, a soldier cares. Or Abigail, stunning Abigail, stands on your trail. Let's pray. Lord, may we be like Abigail, people who make a profound difference in the lives of desperate, selfish, hurting people. Give us courage. Give us compassion. Give us creativity, just like Abby. Amen.